Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Unlikable Female Characters, the podcast about women who don't give a damn if you like them. I'm Lane Fargo, and I'm here today with Gwendolyn Keist. Gwendolyn is the Bram Stoker award-winning author of The Rust Maidens, and her smile will untether the universe, Pretty Marys all in a row, and many other spooky books and short fiction. Her latest feminist horror novel, Reluctant Immortals, is out August 23rd. Welcome, Gwendolyn. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. The concept of this book, which I will let you share with the listeners in a minute, is so fabulous. It was definitely one of those ones where you get the email from the publicist and you're just like, hell yes. (laughs) Is that your cat making it? It is. She's already here. We were talking beforehand and I'm like, oh, I'm sure they won't show up. But of course, she's here already. Okay, well. You have to introduce the cat then. What's the cat's name? The cat's name is Rose of Sharon. She's actually named after the Jode from Grapes of Wrath. Amazing. The one sister. So yes, she's very loud. Actually, she's run off now. I acknowledged her enough that she's like, okay, I'll let you do your podcast now. We are very happy to have cats on the show, so I will not be editing out anything (laughs) that she wants to contribute. (laughs) Any comments, concerns that Mm -hmm. she has. Okay. So could you just tell us a little bit about Reluctant Immortals and the inspiration behind it? Yeah, so it is the sort of forgotten women of gothic horror, Lucy Westenra from Dracula and Bertha Antoinetta Mason from Jane Eyre. And they are both immortals living in 1960s California, still trying to escape their past and Dracula and Edward Rochester. And it's the summer of love and Jane Eyre shows up on their doorstep. And that's when everything kind of goes a little wild for them and they have to face up to their past. So listeners, you can see why I immediately had to read this book. I mean, it's like goth English major fan fiction, which is like the best. I'm so into it. I love that. <laughs> and I also have to thank you for getting the fact that Rochester is a piece of shit. <laughs> you know, it's so funny to me because it's like growing up, I always thought Jane Eyre was so romantic. But as I've gotten older, my mind has split off in two directions. The one that's still like, Jane Eyre's romantic. And the other one's like, this is actually terrifying and he should be arrested. So it's like, I kind of came with both of those tracks in my mind of having love. I love, I love Jane Eyre, of course. You don't ever write yeah. something based on a book if you don't love it. But yeah, he's not very nice, especially when you look back and you're like, 
now that I'm older, I really, this is not romance. This is scary. Yeah. I mean, I'm like a Wuthering Heights bitch, so I get it. <laughs> but I'm always saying that it's bullshit that people are like, Heathcliff is such a monster, but Rochester is so romantic. I'm like, no, he sucks too. And he wants you to think he's a nice guy where Heathcliff is like, I am a monster. Thank you. Which I'm like, at least he's honest. You know, he kills puppies, but at least he's honest. <laughs> So why these two women? Like, why Bertha and Lucy? You know, I've always loved both of them. I grew up, I remember learning about Dracula when I was really young, watching, like, the Hammer movie and the Universal film. And I remember very clearly my mom special ordering this book from England that was an annotated Dracula for my dad. You know, and it's not like now where it's easier to order books overseas. This was, like, the early 90s. And so it was a very big deal for us to be able to get this book. And I remember talking to my parents about the character characters in Dracula and I'm like oh what are the female characters because I always wanted to know who the female characters were because there were never usually very many in any story and they're like oh there's Mina and there's Lucy Mina lives Lucy dies and I'm like oh poor Lucy and so it's like you know I've always thought about her over the years and how she's such a fun character in any of the film versions and in the book she's really fun she has a good time then it feels like she just gets punished for that and so I've always been thinking about her, and I ended up writing a short story, The Eight People Who Murdered Me, excerpt from Lucy Westenra's diary that came out a few years ago in Nightmare Magazine, and that was telling it from her point of view. And I remember when the story came out, I'm like, I feel like I have more to say. I want to hang out with Lucy some more. And that was really one of the ways I started thinking about this. And then with Bertha from Jane Eyre, she's barely in it. We get almost nothing from her perspective. And Dracula, we do get a little bit from Lucy's perspective, the letters and everything like that and her relationship with Mina in particular. But poor Bertha, we get almost nothing from her perspective. So it was like, well, what's her story? You know, where is she coming from? And then I just felt like putting the two of them together. These are two women of gothic horror that we don't get to know enough about. And I'm like, I want to know more about them. And then they always say, you know, write the book you want to read. So I'm like, all right, then I'm going to be writing this book that I want to read. Yeah, with Bertha, it's like she's the mad woman in the attic, mm -hmm. right? But we're told all of this by Rochester, that piece of shit. <laughs> He's like, she's crazy. What could I do? I had to lock her in the attic. Yeah. And it's like, says you, what did you do to her? <laughs> and that's just it. I think especially over the last few years, and a lot of us have talked about how we've been called crazy for things when it was somebody who just wanted to discredit you or wanted to disregard you. So it feels like a thing that you say about a woman if you don't want anyone to listen to her. Oh, she's crazy. Yeah. Don't listen to her. And so that kind of adds that veil over what Rochester says. And it's like, hmm, this is very familiar to what many of us have heard over the years. Rochester. Yeah, like don't listen to her. And then also it's often the way that she's reacting. And mm -hmm. I won't spoil anything, but I liked the explanation you had for why <laughs> everything went down between them the way that it did. Mm -hmm. But her reaction is very proportional to what he has mm -hmm. done. And then he's like, she's crazy. Like who could have predicted <laughs> Ugh, Rochester? <laughs> So another thing I loved about this book is that you have Dracula and Jane Eyre as like cultural texts within this. They talk about the movies, the book, all of this stuff. Having that meta element of acknowledging that is fun. It can be really fun to write. And then I also thought... As a horror fan, how do you even pretend that Dracula doesn't exist to a certain extent? You know, it's hard for me to be like, oh, we're going to come into this and nobody's going to know Dracula's real. And I grew up <laughs> loving the Hammer movies so much that part of me was like, do I want to delete Christopher Lee as Dracula? No, I want to lean into that and I want to bring that out and I want Lucy to actually comment on that. Plus also, you know, it's the summer of love in California. And I've always loved both San Francisco and Los Angeles and Hollywood. And I thought if I'm going to start in Hollywood anyways, 
then let's actually lean into that and be like, okay, this is part of the entire feel of the book is that this is a place that has immortalized both the film versions of Jane Eyre and Dracula. So let's just lean into that and let's play with that and have it be part of the world rather than pretend like it's not. Because that to me was more of a jump than to just say, hey, it's here. Everybody knows who they are, but nobody thinks that this is real. And that also felt like another way for Lucy and Bertha to be deleted. Even though everybody knows, even within the context of the book, what Jane Eyre is and what Dracula is as books and films, but they're still not known. So it's like everybody, even culture, is sort of playing into deleting them and who they are. It really helps emphasize those themes of who gets to tell the story. And then also the fact that with these morally gray, let's say, male characters, <laughs> we as a culture are so obsessed with like, I want to understand mm -hmm. them, like forgiving them mm -hmm. and justifying them and creating all these different versions of them, identifying with them, all this stuff where a woman, it's like, if she fucks up once, she's a monster, delete her, whatever, that's it. It's so true. Who gets to tell the story and why are they telling the story and really exploring that because it is such an important thing and you look and you realize how many real life women's stories have been deleted over the years and we don't know their perspective and how frightening that is to me of how much that's just been part of the way culture has often worked so really thinking about that and it's a terrifying time right now so it's like that's even more you know uh, yeah oh. <laughs> It is definitely a terrifying time. Yes. I don't even, yeah, it just, mm -hmm. <laughs> we don't have time to get into all of right? that, but I hear you. <laughs> I mean, I think that's what makes stories like yours so much more important. Like, while we're still allowed to write books yes. or, or whatever, mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah. before we have to yeah. go back to the kitchen or whatever it is they fucking want us to do. Right? Yeah, it's really important to put these feminist narratives out mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Well, since this is unlikable female characters, let's talk a little bit about each of the main female characters here. So... Lucy, I found her so interesting. She's always commenting on the Victorian times that she came from, where she was pretty rebellious yeah. against the Victorian times. But like, even so, the 60s are like pushing her a lot further. Is that why you chose to set it in the 60s? You know, I love the 1960s. I've been researching the 1960s since I was a teenager. I've always found it so fascinating. I've always found it fascinating as well because it was such a tumultuous time politically. And I feel like, our closest analog to what we're going through right now is the 1960s. And so I've been thinking a lot about that over the last couple of years. What lessons can we learn from protests and political activism from the 1960s? And also, you know, what could we do differently because we're living in a different age? So that was part of it. And then also I did think it would be so interesting to have that juxtaposition of these kind of Victorian heroines now having to deal with what is different in the 1960s? How is it more liberating? And yet at times, how is it almost more stifling for them because it's like all the rules they know no longer apply and that kind of culture shock that they're going through. And then Lucy is also, I mean, she's a vampire, but she's a vampire who doesn't want to kill people. <laughs> I liked the idea of her not wanting to become the monster that Dracula is and that Dracula wants her to be. And I was thinking a lot about cycles of abuse and, and the way it can keep going through generations or across different people and how much she wants to break that cycle. And that's so much of what her entire goal is in this book is to try to figure out a way to not end up like Dracula, to not end up like a monster and to have that kind of conflict of 
I am hungry. I do want to go after people. I do want to drink blood, but I'm not going to because that'll make me too much like him and that kind of struggle of not becoming everything that you really hate, right? That's like a fear a lot of people have. Like, I don't want to become all the things I don't like in the world or all the things that I come from. You had some really interesting commentary around consent in there too with Michael, the guy who she kind of accidentally puts him under her thrall. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that relationship was actually one of the hardest to write in the book because I wanted to deal with issues of consent without making Lucy a monster because there is the huge issue of consent. She was put under a thrall by Dracula and then that can kind of accidentally happen. She doesn't really mean to. She almost kind of does, but it's this kind of push and pull as to... She doesn't want to do this to Michael, who's a Vietnam veteran who had just come back from the war recently when the book starts. And so he's already got this trauma that's been put on him by society. And she doesn't want to be this other trauma. But at the same time, her nature, because of what Dracula did, there's this constant push and pull of like, I don't want to do this to somebody else, but how can I not become that monster? I thought that was really interesting. Just in terms of also how we're always told, you know, boys will be boys and they can't control themselves and whatever. It's like women have the same urges too mm-hmm. in terms of sex and in terms of wanting to murder people. <laughs> and somehow <laughs> right? we're better able to control them. I don't know. Yeah, right. That's what I always think of. It's like they, they act like, oh, boys will be boys. I'm like, girls have the same instinct. A lot of it's, you know, societal. It's like you can't do that. When you're a girl, if you're bad when you're little, it's like you're going to get in a lot more trouble than for the same thing that a boy does. It's so interesting how it's like oh there's nothing that can be done about the way guys are and I'm like there is if we wanted to there really is if we wanted to it's not like I've heard it be described it's not like the weather it's not just something that happens you know it's not just like oh storm clouds moved in it's like no you could have acted better you just chose not to so yeah Yes. I mean, I want to murder people all the time and I don't do it. I write about it. Exactly. <laughs> I exactly. Just write about you find it. better outlets. Yeah. I think right now more than ever, there's a lot of people, a lot of women who are like, hmm, yeah, ready to murder people, but not going to, not going to. We won't be doing that. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. <You're> right. <laughs> Things are changing rapidly. Yes, they are. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about B, Bertha, and Jane and their relationship. Yes. I'll let you choose how much you want to share about okay. that. I don't want to spoil okay. anything. I know it's a little <laughs> bit spoilery, but like I do love their relationship in it so much. It's like one of these central relationships in the book. So they are actually a couple in like the long ago time before the book starts. And so when they show up, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but I think it's okay. I don't think it's something that like, you know, destroys anything, you know, too much. So, yeah, you know, B was obviously, that's her name. That's the name she prefers as opposed to Bertha. You know, she goes by B. And she was the first wife and Rochester put her in this attic. And we find out some details. I won't give away too much of that as to what about that attic kind of created all of this. And then Jane came along and the two of them got to know each other, but then were separated all of this time. And so this is partially trying to fend off Rochester and Dracula, but also for them to try to put back the pieces of what went wrong between them all the many years ago. I was so excited about that. Again, like goth English major fan fiction. I'm like, yes, it's gay. Yes. <laughs> so I knew they could both do better than Rochester. I right? mean, that's obvious. Right? Yes. <laughs> but then Jane kind of keeps 
she just keeps going back mm-hmm. to him. It's like she can't quite mm-hmm. break out of that cycle of abuse, which is a very like it, it's frustrating to read about that in a character, but that's so real. Like that's how it works. Yes, I've had people say that that she's a little bit frustrating, but it's like that's what abuse is like and that's something that I feel like we need to have a more of a conversation about. And mm-hmm. you know, if you've ever been in an abusive relationship, it is this cycle and you try to pull yourself out of it, but you end up going back and there's all these reasons and these ways that you get so accustomed to it and it's demoralizing and this version of Jane Eyre is especially at the start of it but you know a much more demoralized downtrodden Jane Eyre because abuse does that to a person that kind of trauma Mm -hmm. in a relationship really really takes the proverbial winds out of your sails and so I wanted to explore that you think if you know people have just been in an abusive relationship for say a year how much of a toll that takes and in this it's been over a hundred years I can't even imagine that's not something we as actual mortals ever have to worry about no matter how bad life is you're probably not gonna live to be 150 so it's like thinking about how much that would affect somebody. So that's definitely something that she's going through and it's kind of part of her arc of trying to break out of that very long-term cycle of abuse. I mean, a century with that motherfucker (laughs) would (laughs) change anyone. You're so right, though, that it's really important to show that kind of narrative because otherwise it becomes, and even women do this to other women Mm -hmm. where we're just like, well, why didn't you leave? You should have been stronger. You should have, and that's just, that's not how it works. Yeah, it's a cycle for a reason (laughs) it's true and there is that there's like this idea of oh if you were only stronger that's all it would take or this idea that only a certain type of person will end up in an abusive relationship and it's like people who are really really manipulative they can manipulate almost anybody you know what i mean so it's like it's not just one kind of personality oftentimes it's just a bunch of factors coming together at once to have somebody who ends up trapped in an abusive relationship and that it is frustrating to me because you're right everybody sort of perpetuates that narrative of like oh just leave or oh this is so simple and it's like you know and this book doesn't necessarily get as much into it but there's also even just the financial implications of how hard it can be for some women to leave abusive relationships so it's not even just the emotional although that can be powerful so Yeah, I really wanted to explore that and and say, you know, this is still Jane Eyre, but this is a Jane Eyre that is very beaten down from what has happened to her. She's still in there and we definitely get to see her kind of emerge as the book goes on, but it is a different version of her. And I wanted to think, you know, she goes back at the end of the original book. She goes Mm -hmm. back. She doesn't know that Bertha has burned down the place. She just goes back because she wants to be with him. And it's like, you know that he has this wife in the attic, you go back anyways. And so it's like, there was definitely that kind of leaning into a certain extent of like, this was a cycle of abuse already, you know? Which makes sense given her upbringing, everything she goes through, it totally tracks with that yes, character. Yes, it does. It really does. Because I was just thinking about that the other day. I was like, you know, it really does track with how she was treated by her aunt and by the orphanage. And so it, it's very much in line with that continuing cycle of abuse. Poor Jane. Mm-hmm. Jane deserved better. Oh, no, Justice Jane. for Jane. She... <laughs> <laughs> Sapphic happily ever after for Jane. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's what she deserves. Absolutely. Yeah, I tried to write about some similar themes in my first novel where there was a character who was a psychopath and he was manipulating several women. And I mean, you know, what psychopaths do is it's very customized to the person. Mm-hmm. They get to know you and what your weaknesses mm-hmm. are and then mm-hmm. use that. So it's not like there's a specific kind of person, like you said, yeah. that is immune to it. Uh-huh. But people read that book and they're like, well, why did they put up with all of that? Why didn't they 
just leave? Why didn't they just? And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and it's from women. And I'm just like, this is the problem. Yeah. yeah. And I think abuse can be such an isolating thing for so many reasons. But that's definitely one of them. You try to talk to somebody and they're like, no, I don't understand. Just leave. Just leave. It's so easy. And I mean, ideally, eventually the person will leave the situation. But there's got to be a lot of we need to give more support to people, I think, is in general. I mean, just broadly defined, we should be supporting one another a lot more than I think sometimes people support each other. But yeah, to kind of ha- understand the nuance of how how abuse works. Like you said, it's very customized. It usually is. I'm going to get to know you and lean into those qualities. It's not necessarily like, oh, I've got this one size fits all. It's not like that. It is something that's a lot more involved than that that's what makes it so scary there's no way to be immune from it there's so many things like that for women too it's like don't wear revealing clothing don't go out drinking Mm -hmm. don't do all the things they say you're not supposed Mm -hmm. to do to not get raped and then you can still get raped because there's nothing you can do to be completely safe and immune from it exactly (laughs) that's such a good point there's so many like rules we're supposed to follow as women and it's like you could follow all those rules and that doesn't mean it's all going to turn out all right by any means so yeah no and then they'll just find something that you did wrong, some rule that you didn't know about. Exactly. <laughs> Still your fault. Yep. Yep. Oh, man. Yeah. I feel like we all just have a lot of rage yes. right now. That's very, like, this podcast is kind of about that, but I just, <laughs> just need to scream all the time. Yep. Let's talk about feminist horror in general and writing feminist horror. Like, what makes horror feminist in your view? You know, I mean, I feel like horror right from kind of the get-go was feminist, you know, with Frankenstein and Mary Shelley. I mean, it was really right yeah. from right from the start. It, it had that quality to it. And I feel like because horror is so visceral and like we're talking about, the experience of being a woman is very visceral. It's something that we're constantly having to be aware of our safety and we're constantly being told that there are all these rules. And whether you follow them or don't follow them, you often at least have an idea of what these so-called rules are. And so it's sort of, you know, and we can give birth. Apparently, sometimes whether we want to or not, based on, you know, what's going on in the world (laughs) right now. And so there's the body horror of being a woman. And so I feel like every aspect of the feminine leans into horror naturally anyway. To me, it just is a very natural genre as a feminist writer to go into. And, And it's also, horror is so again, visceral, it's so blunt, it's so honest, it feels very immediate. And so you can kind of explore those immediate emotions like rage. It's definitely a genre that you can be like, I am filled with rage right now. And I can channel this very easily into horror because it lends itself very much to those kind of extreme intense emotions. As someone who's mostly written thrillers Mm -hmm. and crime novels, Mm -hmm. it seems like there are fewer rules in horror as far Mm -hmm. as the genre. Like you can kind Mm -hmm. of experiment and do what you want and push the boundaries. I like that, especially now that we're talking about how women have all these rules. That's a good point. There aren't a lot of rules in horror. There really aren't. That You can do almost anything because there's so many different avenues. You can do monster horror. You can do body horror. You can do, you know, ghosts. You know, it could just be just creepy just creepy gothic is even if there's no supernatural element can be horror so it's true i like that like women are given all these rules but in horror it's like we're throwing all the rules out we're just doing whatever we want (laughs) and you can just be like gross and visceral and really go for it yeah do you have well this could be books or movies or tv or any recommendations i'm gonna say for the listeners but also for me (laughs) favorite feminist horror Ooh. I always go with this, but like Shirley Jackson and Angela Carter have some of my, you know, they're like my idols. So I always go with them. 
Let's see. I love the Babadook. That when I think of movies, I just yeah. I love the Babadook. I think it explores motherhood in such an interesting way, and it's not trying to be like, oh, motherhood is all good. It's like no, motherhood's awful and scary and terrible, and it's a horror story. So I love that. Let's see. One of the collections I always talk about is Krista Carmen's Something Borrowed, Something Blood Soaked. It's got some greatest horror in it. I love that. Sarah Tantlinger is another one who's writing some great feminist horror. I think it's going out of print, but I loved her novella To Be Devoured. That that was great. I'm definitely forgetting a ton. There's so much great feminist horror out there. Like there's so much going on right now in, in horror in general, but especially women in horror. So that's very, very exciting. Yeah, it seems like it's kind of exploding. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. It's the publishing, it's impossible to right. <laughs> predict anything that will happen. But what I keep hearing from my agent and people mm-hmm. in the publishing world are it's like people either want happy things or they want horror, like super fucked up. <laughs> like that tracks with what's going on right now. Yeah. Like everyone wanted all these light fluffy things and then yellow jackets came out last yeah. year and everyone's obsessed with yellow jackets for like months at a time. And that shit fucked me up. It like gave me nightmares because I binged it. I watched several episodes in a row and then I was like, oh no, this is bad for my nervous system. I'm feeling some things. I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard great things. I need to watch it. I think I'd like it from what I've heard about it. So I think so. Yeah, just given your book and your whole vibe, I feel like you would be into it. <laughs> it's really it interesting. But I would say I'm looking forward to watching the next season and watching it. I kind of started late because I was like, okay, well, I'll watch this eventually. And then everyone kept talking about it. So for the next season, I'll watch it week by week. And then maybe my poor nervous system will be <laughs> will be better off. It is stressful. Although, you know, you're a horror writer, so you might not think so. <laughs> we'll see. Some horror still definitely stresses me out, though. So I don't feel like just because you're a horror writer, you're immune to it necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. That's true. (laughs) So what are you working on now or next, if you can say? I just sent over my latest novel. It is like a haunted, it's actually, it's, I was going to say a haunted house. It's actually a haunted street. It's a haunted street, like a haunted neighborhood that the characters have to go back to. They're much older now. They're in their 40s and they have to go back to this place that they left when they were much younger to sort of sort out the past, let's say. So that's the one that I just sent it over to my editor and we'll be working on edits for it. So I'm pretty excited about that. And then I'm working the next novel. That's like going to be, you know, probably over the next year or two. So I have no idea when that will be ready. But as of right now, I shouldn't even say this, but I feel like it's probably going to be a sort of sapphic version of david cronenberg's the fly i want to do a a female mad scientist and it's going to be set in 1970s second wave feminism because i i want to go back to a time when roe versus wade still existed so i want to go back to like fairy tale time right now and that's like i really and i there's not enough female like mad scientists quote unquote so like i really want to explore that i feel like we need more of those so yeah we absolutely do okay i'm all I'm so here for that. I'm very excited. <laughs> that's way down the line. Who knows when that's going to be? But I was just talking to a friend of mine who works in the archive at the University of Pittsburgh, and 
I'm going to be going to like, he was giving me recommendations of different, cause it's going to be set in Pittsburgh. And cause I haven't said anything in Pennsylvania yet, even though that's where I live. And so I'm like, we need, I want to do something in Pittsburgh. And he was like, okay, there's all these magazines that were the feminist magazines. We've got them in the archive. And I'm like, so, okay. So the summer it's going to be huge research. I'm going to have my like research montage they always have in movies, right? I'm going to be researching uh-huh. second wave feminism in Pittsburgh in the 1970s. So I'm very excited. I'm very excited. It'll be a fun research project too so yeah that sounds like a fun way to spend your summer yes that's what i'm telling myself and it'll be like you know that way when i have rage i'm like okay these are the women who came before me and they got through all of this so we're gonna get through it too that's what i keep telling myself (laughs) they fought the battles and now we get to fight the battles again again. but at least we have some blueprints of how they did it so yeah yes that's a good point yeah i i can't tell if that would be like it would be hopeful or depressing probably a little bit of probably like right now that's what i'm expecting that there'll be some things that i'll be like oh things got better in this regard and then other things like oh things are actually worse than they were 50 years ago thank you again for the reminder world <laughs> <laughs> Well, that sounds amazing. Okay, just to wrap up, could you tell everyone where to find you on the internet? Yes, I am at my website, GwendolynKeist.com, and you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, Gwendolyn Keist, under my name. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And Reluctant Immortals will be out at the time that this episode airs. You can go get a copy. It has a fabulous psychedelic cover that will look great when you read it at the beach. (laughs) Covered in SPF 1000, like me, because I'm a pale bitch, but... (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Gwendolyn. It was great to meet you. Thank you. This is wonderful. That's it for this episode of Unlikable Female Characters. Don't forget to subscribe, and you can also follow us on Twitter at UnlikableFCPod for updates, book recommendations, and angry feminist rants. Our website is unlikablefemalecharacters.com, and we're also on Instagram at unlikablefemalecharacters. Thanks for listening.